saying, there's nobody like you. And Jesus, we need you. Lord, because there's nobody like you, we need you to come do what only you can do this morning. We need you to come change our hearts. We need you to meet us. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to keep us from sin. We need you to help us to overcome. We need you to give us peace where there is turmoil and worry and fear. Um, we thank you that you are holy. And we thank you that you alone uh, are adequate for these things. And so we look to you today, Father. We just ask that in this time that we have together that you would have your way. And that you would please let each one of us leave here today knowing that we've heard not just from man, but from you. By the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Morning. Good to be with you again in the encore. I want to apologize. I know that um, it's hard to see me because I'm down on the ground. You know, growing up, I always wanted to be six foot five or six, six foot six. Really, I didn't care. I just wanted to be able to dunk a basketball. Um, now at 40 and realizing how little I can jump, I know that it would take a lot more than six five or six six in order for me <laughs> to be able to dunk at this point. Um, but anyway, if I get at that stage, just for those of you who don't know, it's a little bit wobbly when you bounce on it. And if I go up there, there's zero chance that I'm not going to knock something over at some point in the sermon. And so that's what I'm trying to avoid. But two times a year, we can do it. Amen. Um, grab your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 20. Uh, let me jump right in and read these 18 verses. Uh, somewhat of a um, obscure, possibly cryptic passage. Maybe some of you have heard it before. Maybe some of you have not. Um, hopefully you were reading it this past week if you're following along with the church Bible reading plan. Um, and, and by obscure or cryptic, I don't mean that it's not important. I just mean that it, most people would probably not refer to Genesis 20 as like a Psalm 23 or a John 3.16 or a Romans 8, like one of the mountaintops of Scripture that we tend to think of uh, in our minds when we think about those chapters. However, there is just absolute gold in here. And by God's grace, he has so ministered to my heart over the course of this week in reading this, um, and I'm trusting that he's going to do the same for us here together this morning. Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the, in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, 
What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to have been done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did these things? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place where we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah to his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray one more time. God, thanks for today. Thank you that we get to be here together. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together as a local church um, and worshiping you. Thank you, Lord, that uh, our worship is not bound by being in a specific space or a specific building, but that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we ask that today that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts in a way that would change us for our joy and for your good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, uh, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, we have been journeying for some time now um, through these chapters in Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 12, and looking at the life of Abraham. And one of the things that we've been seeing is this promise that God gives him. It's the primary thing that we've been seeing, this promise that God gave him that he would have an heir, even though he and his wife uh, Sarah are barren and cannot have children. And we are now like 24 and a half-ish years into this journey. And in year 25, like we are so close. Chapter 21 is coming next week. It's coming. Isaac is coming. The promise is coming. But not quite yet. And, <laughs> and what we see in this chapter this morning is that in like, at the very end, like, in the 11th hour, Abraham, again, almost screws this whole thing up. <laughs> and, you know, I was asking the interns on Friday, we were looking at this passage, and it's like, one of the things you just want to ask when you're studying the Word is, why did God inspire this to be here? Like, why is it in this place? And in fact, a lot of, like, critical scholars and stuff of the Bible think that Genesis chapter 20 was maybe inserted, maybe it happened at a different time, maybe later, maybe earlier, whatever, and, and it was just randomly inserted here, but there, there's no mistakes in God's word. And I think that the reason that this story is inserted here is because it speaks to our ability, just like Abraham, this amazing ability, this amazing propensity that we have to wander off away from what God has for us. And yet our amazing ability to wander off is matched only by God's amazing inability to let us go. It just doesn't let us go. It's incredible. His mercy um, 
is amazing. When the Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. Every morning, folks. Every morning. For your life as you woke up this morning, God is working in a thousand ways that you do not see, that you did not see this morning, that I did not see. But he's working on our behalf if we're in Christ. And, um, and that's amazing. And uh, if I had to sum up what I want to talk about this morning, it's just that. And I want us to leave here being really, 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 really thankful for that. Because God's preemptive mercy and grace is absolutely incredible. Um, Avery, can you throw that picture up there for me, buddy? We got Avery and Malachi, the tag team media guys this morning. There's a picture um, of, I don't know if you guys, you know, I know, are the Winter Olympics still going on? Curling, anybody really into curling, bobsledding? Anyway, is curling not the weirdest sport, by the way? Like, you, I don't, uh, anyway, I can't, okay. I always follow rabbit trails more than usual when we're in the encore. But this is from 1992. Does anybody know who this is? This is, this is uh, Derek and Jim Redmond. Derek was a, uh, he was actually the world record, or the, the record holder for the, for the nation of Great Britain at the time, which is who he was representing at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics in the 400 meter um, race. I think that's like one time around the track. Anyway, trained his whole life for this uh, had obviously done it a lot of times and was pretty good at it. About halfway around, he didn't just pull, but he actually tore his hamstring. And he came up limping, and, um, and he got up, and uh, you know, obviously he was, he was disappointed. And he got up and he just tried to, he just tried to limp, limp his way along. And all of a sudden, <laughs> his dad busted through security and came running down uh, onto the track. Do, do we have another picture there, Avery, or not? Yeah, there he comes. It's pretty cool if you've ever seen this video. His, his dad comes busting through security and running out onto the track in the midst of this packed Olympic stadium to help him across the finish line. And I, I want to sit on this illustration for a second because I think there are some things that are helpful in it. There are also some things that are not helpful in regards to what I want to talk about this morning, so I want to be really clear. What I like about this, this image is, number one, that the Bible over and over and over again describes our Christian life as a race. And it's a race that we need to run with endurance. Paul, near the end of his life, says, you know, I've, I've fought the fight, I've finished the race that the Lord has set before me. Is that when you were born again, when you trusted Jesus as Savior, you crossed a line. And so many people think that when they did that, they they crossed the finish line, but you didn't. When you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, you actually just crossed the starting line. And now you have, you have a race to run. The gun went off, and you have a race to run. It's this life of discipleship. The second thing I like about it is that, in a, in a general sense, I want to tell you uh, wholeheartedly this morning that it will only be, <laughs> it will only be because of your heavenly Father that you finished the race. The work that he began in you, he will carry it on to completion, as Paul says in Philippians, until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, but there are also some things about this image or this picture, the story that happened, that aren't helpful. First of all, um, like I said, uh, 
Derek Redmond tore, tore his hamstring. And we, we look at that, and that's not really his fault. We think he was a, it was unfortunate. We think, you know, he was a little bit unlucky. You know, we, we would look at him a little bit of his, like a victim in some ways. And this is where the analogy begins to break down because in our race, when I'm talking about us falling, we're not victims, we're perpetrators. It's because of our sin. Um, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Uh, and so it's the sin of, of choosing to live independently of God is kind of at the heart of all of it. And so, uh, you know, we don't just pull a hammy. <laughs> we sin. We sin. Also, there are times when we sin and we get up and we, we kind of limp along as best we can. I think that's a, that can be a fitting metaphor for seasons of our life. But there are also times, and I think this is what we see in the text this morning, and also times in our life, and this is where the analogy or the metaphor kind of completely breaks down, is that we don't get back up and just limp along as best we can. There are times where we, we fall down and then we kind of roll around and we roll right off the track, right out of the stadium, out, and, and we don't even know that we're doing it. <laughs> Is that our sin just takes us and, and, we just kind of, and we just kind of sit in it. And there are times, like we see in the story with Abraham this morning, that again, in his, in his race now like 24 and a half years in, of following God and waiting for this promise, he's continuing to live in kind of this habitual sin that we'll talk more about of him telling this lie that his wife is actually his sister. Because remember, he did this back in chapter 12, you remember, with Pharaoh? It's very important. He did this, he did this early on in his first years of getting up and, and, and following God as well. Um, and I say all that this morning because while there are some redeeming things in this, and I do want to tell you that it is your Heavenly Father that's going to get you across the finish line. I also want us to understand that uh, the real issue this morning isn't just us coming up short, pulling a hammy. It's our sin. And God wants to deal with it. And he does deal with it. Getting to the text here, you can take that picture down, Avery. <coughs> the, the word, I think I mentioned this a little bit ago, but the word that just kept coming up as I was studying this past week, just in my own mind at least, is just this word preemptive is that there is a, there's a preemptive quality, there's a preemptive nature to what God does here. Again, um, Abram comes into this new land, and we'll look at this more a little bit later in the chapter, but this is his little shtick, that for the last 25 years, he's done this little thing where he goes into the land, he did it with Pharaoh, and uh, we don't know for sure that he ever did it again, but this was, it was planned in his mind. Well, yeah, she's my sister. This is the way he was going to handle this. And, and Abimelech takes, goes and he, and he takes Sarah as his wife. And again, I know this is culturally weird to us, but it was, it was acceptable to them back in, back in that day. Um, and God goes to work here to keep Abraham in his promise. And it's amazing, because remember, the promise is to Abraham and to his seed, and God is using their barrenness. 
You know, they try to figure this thing out with Hagar and Sarah and doing that whole thing. We looked at that back in chapter 16. That's not going to happen. He has to be the child of the promise. And eventually the true child of the promise is Jesus who's going to come thousands of years later for the redemption of the world. And, um, but God goes to work here while Abraham is seemingly not even aware that he needs it to keep him in the promise. If, if Abimelech gets with Sarah, uh, the, whole, the whole idea of her being barren and of the promise, there's going to be question as to whether or not the, the son that's eventually going to be born to them is truly going to be the child, the child of promise. And it's this, this is the main idea that I want us to get this morning, is this idea of how God goes to work for us, not just because of us, but despite us. And here's what I mean, is that there are times, listen, this morning, all those who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And even as a believer, if you find yourself in sin, if you find yourself stuck, the Bible says if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is true. You can call upon the name of the Lord and he will be there. He hears you. But that's not what's happening here. Is Abraham isn't calling out to anybody. He's just going on in his sin and he's living in it. And yet still, God goes to work on his behalf. Because he's faithful, because he made a promise, and God always keeps his promises, amen? Always. His mercies are new every single morning. And not only are we not aware of them, but we're not even aware that we need them. But we desperately need them just as much as Abraham did, because if it was not for God's faithful work on our behalf, even when we're not asking for it, we would never stay in his promise. But he does it for us, folks. This is, and I want to zoom out here now into kind of a bigger theological concept that I want to unpack in in just a little bit of time here, just briefly, um, that you see throughout the scriptures. And it is the ministry of Christ's intercession for us. The ministry of his intercession. Is that most of us are very familiar with what Jesus Christ came to do when he came the first time. And he healed and he taught and he was a good teacher and and a good shepherd and all that. But ultimately in all that he was doing, he came to die as a substitute in our place on the cross. He accomplished the atonement. He died in our place. We talked about that over the last several months in different passages such as Isaiah 53 and others that we've been in. We saw it in Genesis chapter 15 with the covenant that God makes with Abraham with Abraham there. That's the primary thing that he was accomplishing. And so many of us growing up in church, and, and really if you're saved you have to have some sort of understanding of this, is you have to understand what Jesus came to do the first time. Okay, and so we look at that and we look at his life and ministry and, you know, if, if someone was just to ask you what the gospel is, most of us would probably say, and this is not bad, but, um, but it's just, you know, it's, it's basic and it's central and there's a reason why we say it and it's, it's good. But we'd say Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you have to believe that he died in your place in order, in order to be saved. Then he was raised again on the third day. And just like he was raised, we will also uh, be raised someday. So, we're, so my point is, is we're kind of familiar with what he did the first time. We're also familiar that because he rose from the dead, he's coming back the second time. And that all those who have believed in him will be raised with him. But the question is, what is he doing right now? We're very unfamiliar with his ministry right now, like today. It's a real ministry. Jesus Christ is risen. You understand that? 
He's alive right now. He is seated at the Father's right hand. And the question is, what is he doing today? So when it says that he's, he's seated, it doesn't mean that he's just like sitting up there chilling, sipping lemonade, right? Like that's not what it is. His ministry today is that he is interceding for all those for whom he died. And he is interceding to see us through to the end. And it's amazing. He does it every single day. Every moment of every day. And we go about our lives just oblivious to it. And we should be so, so, so thankful for it. And again, you see a picture of this in some way in the way that God here in the text, again, just to show you obviously where I'm getting this from the text and then extrapolating that out from other passages throughout the scripture that we'll get to here in just a second. But, but Abraham does this and so God steps in, in and, and he comes to Abimelech in a dream and you know if you're having a dream, like we've all had scary dreams but I don't know that we've ever had one this scary. God shows up to Abimelech in a dream and the first thing out of God's mouth is behold you are a dead man. Huh? What? Wake up, wake up. Um, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? And again, whenever God comes to us with warning, man is always quick to vindicate himself. Um, We can't vindicate ourselves. We need one to stand in the gap for us. And so Abimelech here begins to kind of like, well, I'm innocent. And there is a sense in which he's innocent. However, look at, and this is kind of a, we could spend the whole morning talking about this. um, But in verse 5 and 6, he he says, Did he himself not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I, I know that you didn't know about that. Like, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, but listen, and then listen to God here take all the glory for himself because it's true. Because it's true. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. God can do that. Amen? He can do that. Doesn't have to do it, but he can do that. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Abimelech, you may not have known all about this, but just tap the brakes on you thinking that you're Mr. Innocent. It was I who kept you from sinning, from sinning against her. And so God steps in here, and he is, although this is a type of judgment, this is another, um, again, just in passing here, I think it's worth mentioning. Have you noticed over the last couple chapters, especially with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, how there's this mingling of God's mercies and his judgment? And his judgments are merciful, and in his mercy there is also judgment. It was a judgment, obviously, that God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. However, it was also merciful for him to destroy that wickedness and to destroy that sin. And it was merciful of him to deliver Lot out of that. Yet at the same time, there was a judgment in Lot's life. Lot Lot lost everything, including his wife. Yet he was delivered from it. There's a mingling of God's judgments and his mercies. I know this is a little bit heavy, but in the book of Corinthians, Paul talks to, he, Paul's writing a letter to them, and he says, to them, he says, some of you have fallen asleep, i.e., you have died, because you've taken communion in an unworthy manner. And God was taking them home so that they would not continue in sin. There's judgment and mercy mingled together. 
um, even in the lives of believers. And so the same thing here, there's a judgment in a sense coming on Abimelech, yet God is also being merciful. And God is showing mercy to Abraham, yet there's also a sense of judgment because as we're going to see here, Abimelech is going to rebuke him. But if I can just real quickly run through some of the scriptures um, of Christ's intercession for us now. Again, in these Old Testament stories, you see in, in just seed form what later on grows into these bigger theological trees. Okay, Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. So do you see how he connects justification and intercession? Uh, I don't know if we still have any out there on the connect table or not, but several, we did have some free books that we were giving away to you guys. Uh, There's a book by, I believe it's Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. He has a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful chapter or two in there on Christ's ministry of intercession as well as his advocacy, um, which is like intercession but slightly different. And he has a little quote in that book where he says, intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. And now that's, that's theological gold, I'm telling you. Intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. That if you've trusted in Christ, his blood covers you, and yes, all your sins are washed away, but he actively now today, because of the atonement, stands to intercede for you. He's doing that right now. Um... Hebrews 7, 23, when you talk about intercession, it's hard to talk about that without thinking about the imagery of the priest, and especially the high priest in the Old Testament, and we don't have time to go in and look at all of that in detail. However, with that imagery in mind of of the priest offering a sacrifice on behalf of the people, acting as an intermediary, which Christ then came as our better high priest, our better intercessor, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25, he says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in this office. In other words, why did we keep needing other high priests? They kept dying because <laughs> they, they were sinners. But Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, and so well, what's the implication of that? Consequently, listen, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Christ doing right now at the right hand of God? He is interceding for his people. Yes, when we confess things to him, yes, when we call out to him, that's all beautiful and good, and I'm not minimizing it at all. It's just not even primarily what I'm talking about this morning because the text points to something a little bit more nuanced. Is that not just when we call out to him, but when we don't even know that we need to be calling out to him. One more example here. I've got a, there's a bunch of examples, but we've got to keep moving, but... Um, 
in Luke 22, you see Jesus do this exact same type of thing in Peter's life. Is it's the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, and you know everybody thinks they're going to stand strong, but in just a couple hours they're all going to deny him. And Peter's one of those that thinks he's never going to leave Christ's side. But Jesus says to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. So Satan came to God and said, I want Peter. He's mine. I'm going to destroy his life. Why did that not happen? He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and listen and then it goes on and Jesus says to him and when not if and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers Peter had no idea this was going on Satan comes before the throne of God I demand to have Matt, Taylor, Lindsay. But Jesus stands there, interceding. He says, no, 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 they belong to me. They are mine. In other places, man, we don't, we don't have time. I, would, I, just, oh, I just want to hit you with both barrels with this this morning. No one can snatch anyone out of the Father's hand. No one. No one. And, and let me just, I'm, I'm going to address something. I don't mean to be mean-spirited because many of you, I've heard this from many people, okay? People get cheeky with that verse. You go, you can't snatch them out, but they can choose to wander out. Are you kidding me? That's not the point of the verse at all. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand and no one will snatch them out of my father's hand. My father's even greater than I. The point of that verse is not that, whoa, they, the sheep could choose to turn and wander out. No, they can't. Abraham, that's my whole point. Abraham would choose, that, if you're going to roll with that imagery, Abraham would kind of be like wandering out of his hand. No, no, no. They're mine. You are secure in Christ. Not because you don't still sin, but because Christ is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. That's why. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. His work is complete. And if you believe that that can happen, then you are minimizing the work of Christ, not just in the past on the cross, but right now before the throne of God as he sits at the Father's right hand. This is good news, folks. Sorry, am I coming across as I feel myself becoming intense, but um, this is really good news <laughs> because I really still sin. I really still sin, and Jesus really still saves me again and again and again. And I know that you're the same way. The reason that you will wake up a Christian tomorrow morning or the reason that you will wake up a Christian 10 or 20 or 30 years from now is because Christ is not going to stop interceding for you. He is faithful to the end. Amen? He's so faithful. So I want us, I want us to understand, and again, that was just cliff notes. 
on this idea of intercession. So much more that could be said about it. But I want to look here, in his intercession for us, God is sovereign over the ends, but he's also sovereign over the means. And there's some practical ways that he teases out sanctification in our life. There's a thousand different ways. But there's, there, there's some big ones here. And, and again, this is, it's a theological, somewhat of a juggernaut, verse 6, that he throws in here. Because he says very clearly, and obviously this is part of his inspired word, and he wants us to know this. He says to Abimelech, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Well, in the same way, God could have chose to keep Abraham from acting like a goofball by telling people that his wife is his sister, right? But he didn't. And Again, God is not... The author of sin, and he doesn't tempt anybody with sin, yet at the same time, he is sovereign over it somehow. And what we see here are these, are these practical, uh, two, there's just two practical things I want to point out, that God, in his intercession and in his sovereign intercession, ways that he sanctifies us practically. One is by, he, he's very good at bringing us to a place where we have to confront the root of our habitual sins. Okay? Now, let me read the story here, and then this is primarily in verses 13, 11 through 13 here, okay? But let me go on. Verse 7, now he says to Abimelech, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, what is this you have done and how have I sinned against you and uh, you have done to me things that should not have been done. What did you see that you did this thing? He just, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Now verse 11, okay? So Abimelech confronts him in his sin. We're gonna talk more about that in just a second. But, but here in verses 11 through 13, you see Abraham confess some things as to what was going on in his heart in regards to this habitual sin. Now, when I say habitual sin, do you know what I mean by that? I mean, it's a habit. Habitual habit, that's where that word comes from. It's, it's a sin that we, many of our sins, we, listen, we're, we're sinners in all sorts of ways, and we're saved only by grace, and it's only through living in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can overcome sin, okay? So that as we walk in the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. It can't be in our own power, it has to be in the power of the Spirit. That's why we have to live every day crucified to ourselves, asking God to live his life through us. Only way to overcome it, okay? But when we still sin, you... you Sin is sin in some sense. However, if you're going to create some sort of categories, there are kind of like what I might call like one-off sins. Like sometimes like you do something, you're like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I, why did I respond that way? And again, sin, this is where psychology will always fall short in dealing with your sin because Jesus didn't say to reason with your sin. He said to kill it, right? So don't just try to reason with it. Crucify that thing, Okay. And so, and so that is true. I just want to say that as a caveat here. That's absolutely true. However, there are habitual sins, meaning sins that we, for all, each one of us, they might be different for our lives, but things that we fall into over and over and over again. At least I know that's how it is for my life. Like if, I, if I'm going to fall into sin, it, it's, it's going to probably be the same thing. I tend to struggle with some of the same things. Are you with me? Anybody else? Yeah, okay. So habitual sins. Well, Again, on one level, sin is mindless, 
and it doesn't need to make sense. However, on another level, there are some things that go on inside of us, and the reason that we fall into habitual sin is because of this simple reason. We justify it. We justify it. And now, I want to show you this, this justification here that Abraham seems to come out, and how, again, in the, even though Abimelech is confronting him, this is all ultimately God working to sanctify him. Verse 11, he says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. So he's afraid they're going to kill him. And then, and then I, like, I like verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So she's like, you know, a stepsister. And again, I know that's weird for us, but back then it was, you know, commonplace and you actually they tried to marry within people within their own heritage okay um so you've got this you've got this fear and then you've got this little half truth about a sister and then you've also got this idea of self-reliance okay so verse 13 and when God caused me to wander from my house and again I don't know there in that little phrase caused me like is he is he kind of blaming God maybe maybe not I don't know But when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So Abraham's like, I got to deal with this. There's going to be an issue. People are going to want to kill me. And so now, here's the point. In our habitual sin, why do we keep doing the same thing over and over that we know we shouldn't do? We justify it. How did Abraham justify it? Three pieces, okay? Number one, he was afraid, so there was fear. Number two, there was self-reliance. And number three, there were half-truths. Let me say that again. Fear, self-reliance, and half-truths. Fear, self-reliance, and half-truths. Several weeks ago, we talked about, I believe it's chapter 15, when God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, fear not. And I talked about how that is the most frequently repeated command in all of the scriptures. Why? Because we're afraid a lot. Okay. Um, this is just for what it's worth, just um, it's kind of a side note here, but it, uh, in counseling and psychology, they will say that like, like, for example, if you struggle with anger, anger is a secondary emotion. They say the primary emotion is, is usually fear. Fear is a primary emotion, so anger though, so when we're angry, like, well, I'm just angry. No, you're actually afraid. You're afraid, and you're acting out in anger. The secondary emotion because your real emotion is that you're afraid. And we're afraid to admit that we're afraid. But so fear is driving this thing. And then he thinks in this fear, I can't trust God. I've got to deal with this myself. And, and notice, he did this right from the beginning. Right from when he went out. And again, practically here, speaking of the habitual sins in your life that you fall into over and over. Somewhere I'm asking you this morning to examine your own heart with the Holy Spirit's help. Have you made a little deal in your own little mind and heart somewhere that it's okay? Was there a time, maybe a long time ago, when you were afraid? Maybe, and I'm not saying that it wasn't a scary situation, but you were afraid, and so what did you do? I gotta take care of me. I gotta deal with this myself. Maybe in your old life, but guys, not anymore. You've got a new shepherd, and he's a good one. He knows what he's doing. He wants to care for you. He wants you to trust him. And then we, the final piece to the recipe is that we sprinkle it with half-truths. 
fear, self-reliance, I gotta do this myself, and half-truths. Well, she, I mean, she is kind of my sister. See, so it wasn't really a lie. No, it was a lie. Half-truths are lies. You gotta call it for what it is, right? Can I just give you, and I know we're zooming down. Are you guys, are you guys with me? Are you with me? Okay, listen, I wanna, I wanna zoom down a little bit. I wanna drill down even deeper on the half-truths. I, and I just, there, there's a ton of them. There's a ton of them. There's almost no end to the half-truths that we tell ourselves in order to justify our sin. But let me give you three big ones that I hear regularly. Number one, God wants me happy. We fall into the same habitual sin because we say, well, God wants me happy. Half-truth. Yes, God absolutely wants you happy. He also wants you holy. And so if you're pursuing happiness in unholiness, then that's not of God. That's a half-truth. He absolutely wants you happy. He wants to satisfy your soul. He is the lover of your soul. But he wants to satisfy you in all that he is for you through Jesus. God wants me happy. Number two, this is just the way I was raised. It's just the way I grew up. Just the way I was raised. Why, why do you do that? Well, it's just, just, just the way I was raised. Half truth. Yeah, okay. I can't argue with it. Yes, you're part of a new family now. You've got a new father. You've got a new older brother, Jesus. He promises to always be with you. The Holy Spirit is now in you. He's transformed your heart and your life and your nature. It's no longer an excuse to justify your habitual sin by saying, well, this is just the way I was raised. You have been born again. Amen? Half-truth number three. No one understands. No one understands. No one understands. Well, you just don't understand. Well, kind of, sort of, maybe. Maybe I don't understand. Maybe your spouse doesn't understand. Maybe your mom and dad don't understand, but Jesus understands. Again, speaking of his high priesthood, one of the many verses that I just skipped over, but Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, just as we are yet without sin. Jesus understands, folks. So the half-truth of, well, nobody understands, not true. And here's the thing, other people understand too. Other people have been through it. So don't justify your sin because of fear, self-reliance, and half-truths. And again, this is a mercy that God bring Ab- brings Abraham to this place where he says it out loud. And again, my point just simply being is that it would do some of us a world of good if we would just say out loud the lies that we believe. Yeah, I'm justifying this. Yeah, it's because I'm afraid. Yes, I've been trying to deal with it on my own strength. And yes, I, I lie to myself. And I tell half-truths. Many of us here this morning, you need to say that out loud. And it's God's grace. It's a grace of God that he brings us to that place in our lives where we do that. Um, third, again, along with his intercession and then the specific of him bringing out the habitual sins in our life and causing us to confess them and confront them, is there's a little something in here about, um, and again, it's, it's just in seed form. 
I, I admit that I'm extrapolating this out. But, but one of the great ways that God sanctifies us, one of the great ways that he helps us make it across the finish line, practically, is through other people. Is that God uses sinful people to sanctify sinful people. He absolutely does that. And again, it's a testimony all to, his, to the riches of his grace. But you see here in verses 8 through 10, Abimelech, a pagan man, um, you see him reproving Abraham, asking him just rapid-fire questions. What have you done? How have I sinned against you that you did this to me? What have you done to me? You ought not have done these things. What did you see that you did these things? He's confronting him in his sin. At the same time, you're going to see Abraham ministering to Abimelech. God says in verse 7 that, that uh, Abraham is a prophet. By the way, um, well, let me come back to that in just a second. But then also verse 17 and 18, the story ends with Abraham praying for Abimelech so that he and his household will be healed because God had closed all their wombs. That's part of the curse of him taking uh, Sarah into his house as his, as his wife. And again, as you think about Abraham's life and Again, this idea of, of God using sinful people to sanctify sinful people. Uh, it's God's means of sanctification in our life is amazing. And you th- look here, like, and again, I, this is for, for Abraham as you've been studying his life. What's been the big burden of his life? That they can't have kids. And here we see God sovereignly working to bring Abraham to a place where now, even before he has his own kid other than Ishmael, but through Sarah, he's now praying for a man and his family who can't have kids. A man who can't have kids is praying for a man and his family who can't have kids. So he understood that. Back in verse 7, there's just a little nugget that's worth mentioning in passing. In verse 7, God says to Abimelech, now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. This is the very first time in Scripture that the word prophet is ever used. Okay? And there's a little hermeneutical principle um, that, called the law of first mention. And some, you can get really weird with it, but, but it does have some legitimacy. And it's the idea, the law of first mention is the idea of that whenever a, a key word or term or phrase is first used in the Scripture, it's not that that gives the only definition, but that gives kind of like the most fundamental definition. So, for example, um, in a couple weeks when we look at uh, how Abraham is, gonna go, is told to go sacrifice Isaac, okay, um, God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's the first time in the Bible that love is ever mentioned. Okay? And obviously that has some core theological meaning because God is one day going to send his son into the world, his son whom he loved in order to die for the world, because he loved us as well, as well too. So in the same way here, it's the first time that the word prophet is mentioned. And there is, a, there is an aspect of our lives, and here's my point. There, there's an aspect of our lives as God's people that we are to serve a prophetic function in the world today. And, and when I say the word prophet, that term has been so hijacked and used in weird ways in our world today that like you've got all these guys running around out there saying that they're apostles or that they're prophets or you got to hear this word from the Lord that's all a bunch of nonsense okay it really is but there is a real sense in which we are to be a prophetic people and what going with the law of first mention how is prophet used here 
Prophet is used in the sense that Abraham is praying for the healing of the nations. That is, and my point is, is that as, a, as a, the prophetic people of God, as his people, the church, in the world today, it should still be a primary role of ours. That we are praying for the healing of the nations. That Abraham here, even though uh, you know, God, Abimelech is somewhat in the, obviously somewhat in the wrong and God's confronted him here, God uses Abraham to pray for him and to bring healing to his household. And then next week, Abraham is going to find this, a sense of healing when he finally gets the promise fulfilled and they're going to have Isaac coming up in the next chapter. But guys, God, God wants us to love each other and, and he wants us to love the world as well. And listen, going back to the main point about God's intercession for us, if we understand Christ's ministry of intercession for us on our behalf, when not only do we not deserve it, but we're not even aware that we need it, it should have a practical teasing out in our life, the fact that we should stand willing and ready to show mercy and to intercede to the lost and dying world around us in a very real way. James chapter two, James sums this up about as good as as anyone possibly could. He says, we are to so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this comes through relationships. If you're going to show mercy, it's got to be in the context of relationships. All the one another passages in the New Testament, there's over a hundred of them. Love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, build up one another, be like-minded with one another, accept one another, admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak with one another, be kind. I'll just stop, but there's a lot. One another's. Showing mercy to one another. Um, several, a couple years ago, we had uh, Julie Slattery with uh, Authentic Intimacy Ministries um, spoke here at a women's conference, and then there was a guy that came up with her, Jonathan Dogerty, who has a, a ministry called Be Broken Ministries uh, in San Antonio, Texas. Um, recently, uh, Julie interviewed Jonathan, those two people that were here, on her podcast. And I just happened to give it a listen, and he said something in there that is very applicable here, again, in talking about God getting us across the finish line and the practical ways in which he sanctifies us as he's interceding for us. And it's this, he said, the opposite of addiction is not abstinence, it's connection. The opposite of addiction is not abstinence, it's connection. Let me say the same thing, just a different way. The opposite of sinning isn't not sinning. The opposite of sinning isn't not sinning. It is meaningful, Christ-centered relationships. Very practically, very, very practically. Even though we've been up high and, you know, talking about intercession and what is Christ doing now at the right hand of God, all that, very practically, here's what I'm saying. Is that more than likely, for most of you, the breakthrough that you are looking for in overcoming practically some of the habitual sins in your life, it is going to come through people. It is going to come through relationships where Jesus is at the center, where they can reprove you and rebuke you as Abimelech did to Abraham 
and also where you can pray for each other and they can pray for you as Abraham did for Abimelech. Even more practical. Some of you, a few of you are involved. It's just, we're just starting off. It is just in seed form. Conrad is leading a new minister here at Mercy Hill called Regeneration Recovery. It is just gold. You have no idea what that is, it, like how good that is. And here's the deal. When we talk about recovery, until the day I die, I'm going to be hammering away at this until we all get it as a church. That recovery ministry is not just for the really bad sinners, the really bad addicts. I will say this a thousand times as long as the Lord allows me to be the pastor here. Every single one of us is in recovery, folks. We are recovering from sin. And more than likely, the breakthrough that you are looking for right now in this season of your life is going to come through allowing other members of the body of, the, of Christ to minister to you. Other sinners helping other sinners, and in the same way, you helping them, a sinner helping other sinners. But all under the sovereign hand of God. Worship team, you come up. We're going to close. A couple things, nothing new, but what I've already said. Right now, today, in this season of your life, are you justifying your sin? Are you making excuses for it? Look at me. I love you. Jesus loves you. Stop. Stop. You're part of a new family. You've got a good shepherd, good savior, good father, who will never cast you out, who will keep you in his hand. He loves you. Don't justify your sin. Secondly, as I just got done saying, who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to tell this morning that you're struggling with sin? It's okay because we're all recovering from sin. There's one Savior, it's Jesus. There's one high priest who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet is without sin. Who do you need to tell? It's probably the key to your healing. And lastly, um, although I, again, truly, we just skimmed the surface of this idea of God's intercession, Christ's intercession now for us. But I don't know that you can say it any better than using the words to the hymn of before the throne of God above. This song is all about Christ's intercession. And uh, I don't want to sing it, but I just want to kind of preach it to you and over you as we close this morning, okay? So let me read this and then I'll sit down. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold, 
him there, the risen lamb. My perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Amen? He is going to see you through, folks, because he ever lives to make intercession for you. Jesus, thank you for being good to us. Thank you, Jesus, that right now today you stand, risen, interceding for your people. Father, I pray that as we stand, as we sing this last song, Lord, as we turn our eyes towards you, as we worship you, God, I pray that you would lift anyone here who's living with a weight of their own sin that they feel like they cannot bear, the weight of worry, anxiety, fear, the burden of having to be self-reliant. Lord, I pray that you would lift that. And I pray that with the eyes of their heart that they would be able to stand and see you, the risen Christ, interceding for them. Thank you for your great love for us, Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys stand with me.